Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And today, before we get started, I would like to give a huge shout-out to all of the guys out there in the world. I've seen them when I was driving through town. They're getting their cars washed. There's lines out of all the grocery stores and all of the romance stores and all the flower shops. And it's D-Day. So D-Day is the day before V-Day, which is Valentine's Day. And many guys know that this is just the basics to get uh, their woman happy. And if they do not get the right product or prize or gift, whatever you want to call it, then they are in the quote-unquote doghouse. And so I'm happy to introduce our guest today because he believes that men are not dogs. He's actually going to talk about the five secrets to attracting the modern man. And I can't wait. I'm sure you can't wait after that wondrous introduction. I'd like to welcome Arnaud Grand to the podcast. Welcome, Arnaud. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, a lot of guys look at today as D-Day because happy wife, happy life, and if if we don't get them the right gifts today, then we're in the doghouse for Valentine's Day. Well, that's right. You will be in the doghouse if you don't treat your woman properly. That should be (laughs) obvious. (laughs) It it seems like a dog, uh, uh, I was going to say a dog and pony show. I guess I'll use a lot of references to dogs today. But we have the the men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and, you know, these cute little cliches that we say men are dogs, women are cats and such. But you're saying that there's five secrets to attracting a modern man that maybe we are playing and not I don't want to group everyone in that in that category but it seems like the majority of people when they deal with relationships they are going at it the wrong way so I'm really happy that you're on today to kind of clear clear up the air if you will for us well thank you you know part of what prompted me to want to talk about this subject is there's so many women who are frustrated with men who feel like they can't find the kind of man that they really want, and then they say something like, those men don't even exist. And they do. Modern men do exist. And I'd love to share a little bit about how to find one, how to attract one, and how to keep one. Sure. Now, I would think that to find one, to keep one, and get one, uh, there were times where you may not have been in that scenario. So I'd like to talk a little bit, if you will, to back up a little bit and where did you find yourself that you were saying, you know what, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to, but everything's not clicking, and what can I do to change that scenario? Do you mean from someone who's trying to find a modern man, like why they're not attracting that person? Yeah, I'd like to actually look at both, because I don't want to point the finger, you know, have the battle of the sexes, but I think that guys look at, at attracting women one way, and women look at attracting men another way. Definitely. So what you're wondering is, how does someone get from where they're at when they're not attracting what they want to being able to attract what they want? Is that your question? Yeah. I mean, it seems rather extreme that if you're saying women are saying these men don't exist, and we're like, we're right in front of you. Or it, it could be the person that we're currently with, and there could be this mythos that this person is out there, and you lead the person that may be the perfect person for you. Mm, I suppose those are two different things, yeah. Well, 
I mean, if you're happy in your relationship, then you're happy in your relationship. And if you're not, well, why not? And I think where people tend to go wrong is they look at the other person as being the cause of why they're not happy instead of looking at their own unconscious programming and unconscious feelings that they've stored up throughout their life that are just like we call baggage that they're carrying around with them wherever they go and that that might be really why they're not happy in their relationships. But ultimately, when you work on those issues, you tend to attract people that can vibrate and match with you, can resonate with you in having a happy relationship. But if you're alone and you can't seem to bring in that person, it's even more important to do that, that inner work, that dealing with the issues inside that are causing you to repel instead of attract what you really want. Now, when you're talking about unconscious programming, is that a moving target? Uh, because the thing that maybe my dad did to get my mother may not work today. Uh, one people that know me know I love watching for some reason. Leave it to Beaver, where the, the 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 father brought home the bacon and the mother stayed home and cooked and raised the children. Uh, that paradigm is not a popular scenario today. So. Uh, one generation's unconscious programming could be different from the current generation. Absolutely. And uh, both men and women have to sort of um, figure out who they want to be in their love life. I mean, it's perfectly normal for uh, both husband and wife or man and women or both people in the relationship to uh, have a full-time job. So then shouldn't they split the household chores evenly? It makes sense to me. But when I'm talking about unconscious programming, I'm talking about the things that happened to you, the thoughts that got stuck in you, the beliefs that got stuck in you, the emotions that got stuck in you, that keep coming up without you wanting them to come up and keep bringing into your life people that bring those issues up in you until you deal with them. I can give you an example if you want. Oh, that would be a, a huge example because, you know, you would say, I keep dating the same person even though their faces may be different, there may be, like you said, there's that, that, that picture that they have, that unconscious picture that they're putting in front of them. That is so funny. That's exactly what I say. Do you find yourself dating the same person, but they all have a different name? So I had this client named Shelly whose dad and older brother used to put her down and make fun of her and beat her up emotionally a lot as a kid. And so as she grew into an adult, she dated men who treated her like dirt, in her words. And she couldn't get out of that pattern. She got married, and when she told her husband that she was stage one cancer, uh, three weeks later, she came home and everything was gone. He never said a word. She couldn't find him. He just disappeared. She had to get her divorce by posting something in the newspaper because she literally couldn't find him anymore. That was her experience of men. They all treated her like crap her whole life. And when I met her, she was in her 40s. And so she took my training where you learn how to reprogram the unconscious mind. And so she started going through the different levels, the different layers of stuff that happened to her as a kid and just erasing all the pain from her dad and her brother beating her up. And it took her about four months. You know, everyone's different. Some people have a big pile and some people have a small pile of stuff to work through. And after the, the last layer of the unconscious pain around men was gone, she met Tim two months later. And Tim's a very successful guy. He's an engineer. He's a genius. He's really kind. And he had just prayed to God to meet his wife. And when he met her, he's like, I know it's you. They got married. I went to their wedding. It was in San Diego at Balboa Park. And when I got there, 
she just started crying. She's like, I wouldn't be getting married if it wasn't for you. And it really wasn't me. It was her. She did the work. And that's what I mean when I say do the work. Is she went in and removed all those those chunks of emotional pain and negative thoughts that are all mixed together from her past. We call that the unconscious mind. So it wasn't that she made a conscious decision to like write a better dating profile or to you know, make better rules about men and who she's going to date. She did the inner work on all that old stuff that was in her, and that allowed her to then magnetize or attract to her a guy that matched her real heart and what she really wanted in her life. That's a great story uh, as far as transformation, for sure. You know, um, I mean, it's, it seems like when you have an extreme, that seems to put you in the right direction of where you need to go. And that's where David and I initially were talking about intrinsic motivation, because it seems like when it's, when it's a, a, a smaller story or a smaller issue that the universe is giving you, it's, it's, it's giving you an opportunity to overcome it at that time. But if, since you can't see it linearly, you're kind of like, wow, I had to do a whole 360 degrees before I was able to make this transformation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you said it so well, the universe is trying to speak to you. And sometimes it's a little tap on the shoulder, or like Stuart Wilde said, first the, whis- the universe whispers in your ear. But if you don't listen, eventually the universe drops a Mack truck on you and forces you to face those issues. <laughs> So I know uh, this, the course that you were talking about, this, this is a part of your, your Total Health Mastery programs? Yes, yes. Total Health Mastery University is the uh, university I created. There's 21 courses. The first course is the seven steps to reprogramming yourself. It's a three-day course. People can take it online. They can just watch the video from anywhere in the world, or they can come to California and take it in person a couple times a year. If people are interested, they just go to my website. It's totalhealthmasteryusa.com. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about you um, before you developed Total Health? What was it that led you to, to develop it? Well, both my parents were deaf. They can't hear. And they both had a horrible drug addiction. When I was eight, they really went off the deep end. They just started smoking crack all day, every day. They didn't stop until I was 19. And so being the oldest, I took the brunt of their abuse towards us kids, and I also try to take care of my brothers the best I could. And at the end of that period, when I was about 20 years old, I remember sitting there realizing I am totally screwed up. <laughs> like I have so much pain that I've learned how to bury, but I know I'm going to have to face it someday. And when I was 22, I was really physically sick. Now I know that I didn't eat well and so on, but I think the emotional abuse, the stress, the verbal violence, the absolute hell I went through was the real reason why I was so sick. And I learned how to heal my body, and then I started creating courses on that because no doctor could help me. And so when I figured it out, I'm like, I've got to teach people what I did. And in the course of developing the Total Health Mastery trainings on how to fix the body, I began to see that if I don't learn how to heal my mind, I'll never survive. I'll never make it because it was just like a giant mountain of pain from what I'd gone through. And I went to every seminar, book, cassette program, CD program. I went to all the different types of practitioners I could find to learn how to release the emotional pain of the past permanently. And what I heard often was, it's impossible. There's no way to do that. You just have to learn how to deal with it. You have to think positively. And and it's important to think positively, but that doesn't change your unconscious mind. That doesn't change the programming. And so that's what just... 
pushed me to find a way because I couldn't find one in the world to find one myself. And so I just kept asking for answers and kept getting answers until I pieced together what I call the design of the human mind. And the seven steps is just a simple manual of how to go into your mind and get to the stuff you don't want, delete it, and then make it permanent, which is unique. No, one's else, no one else has ever done it that I know of. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> so how long, how long did it take you to come up with the, the – I mean, I'm sure you didn't just decide one day, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out and I'm going to make it seven steps. It was probably a work in progress. But how long did it take you to come up with uh, your program? Well, I actively started developing Total Health Mastery in November of 2000. I actively started looking for a way to release negative emotions permanently in the summer of 2001. In May of 2003, so about two years later, I had figured out what I called at the time permanent transformation, which is the same thing as the seven steps to reprogramming yourself. It's just that no one knew what the heck I was talking about when I said I figured out how to permanently transform because it means you stop being the pain of your past and you start being your real self, the, the soul, the heart that you actually are. So over time, over about maybe two, three years and working with clients and teaching workshops, we began to figure out, okay, the seven steps for your programming yourself is a name that everyone can understand a lot better. And so I've been teaching it since then. I've taught thousands of people. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking about the the wonderful world of California. There's people that we that we've interviewed through for um, you know during our duration, and it seems like there's pockets. Like there seems like California, um, seems like Colorado, and some other pockets around the around the United States where they have this personal development or just desire to reach their peak potentials. And so like David mentioned, he's from California. He did the Berkeley Psychic Institute and you had tried so many, like you said, I was laughing when you said cassette. I was, you know, you kind of took me back there for a second. But I wanted to know, were you, were you able to gravitate to uh, different groups out there in where they would complement your seven steps, or you were just like, I'm just, I'm going to be my own man. No, I, I ended up uh, developing my own programs completely because one of my personal gifts is to take a lot of information and cut out all the stuff that isn't necessary, all the fluff, mm-hmm. and boil it down to the simple, simple steps, and then be able to teach it in a way that everyone can understand it. I've had that gift since I was born. I mean, when I was in college, I worked my way through college teaching algebra and trig and all these economic difficult things to other people and I would often be teaching kids in the class that I was in because it just it was easy for me to explain it that I always knew that was one of my gifts and so when I came across this information that saved my life and then the seven steps I knew that I just needed to explain it in my own way and it's actually taken me a long time to figure out how to teach the seven steps in a way that everyone can understand it um, but all those organizations that you mentioned, like Berkeley Psychic Institute and many of the other ones around here, I love them. I've taken a lot of courses with different organizations, but I never found an organization really to partner with, so to speak. Um, I, sometimes there's competition, and sometimes it just doesn't match, and so I have my own thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I was just going to ask. Uh, I know, so you, you said that your, you know, your parents were um, – we're dealing with addiction problem for like a 10, 11 year period. Um, where did they just wave, were they able to just to come out of that on their own or was it something that you helped them with? 
Well, my mom wanted to stop smoking crack. It's funny because I didn't know it was called crack when I was a kid. <laughs> they called it freebasing, but it's the same thing. Um, she wanted to stop on many occasions, but she couldn't really because my dad didn't want to. So when I was 17, I had this dream where I was shown that the person who is right has all the power. And it didn't take long, maybe a month or two after that, for uh, my parents to have this big fight where my mom was saying she wanted to stop doing drugs, and my dad was saying, I don't want to stop. And she was like, well, I can't stop if you're doing it, so I need you to leave so I can sober up. And he's like, no way, this is my house. I'm not leaving. You get out of here. And she's like, how am I supposed to leave? I have to take care of the three boys, and I don't have a job. Like, I need to stay here and sober up so you can leave and go stay somewhere else because you have money. And he's like, no way. I'm not leaving. So I walked and stood in front of my mom and stood right in front of my dad and was really close to his face, and I said, you get out. And he said, I'm going to tell Grandpa Jay on you, which was his dad. And he had been lying to my grandpa for years about me, trying to make me look like I was the bad guy, make him look like I was the bad guy, you know, to him. And I said, I'll tell Grandpa Jay on you. And the thing is, I was the one in the right. And so at that moment, when I said that and he saw that I was serious, he just turned around and walked out of the house and started living in hotel rooms. So my mom sobered up after that pretty much on her own. I don't know if it was right away, but within, the, within a few months. And then with my dad, I was really worried about him, you know, living in hotels, doing who knows what. So I went to a prayer ceremony. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a sweat lodge. It's a Native American prayer ceremony. ceremony. Very old, old school stuff. It happens all over the world. And I prayed for my dad to stop doing drugs, and there were like 20 people in there, um, praying with me and I could hear them like going oh like it was just so painful how much how much there was in my heart about my parents and their drug problem and two days later my dad got arrested at four in the morning on a Friday night and his option was five years in prison or rehab he went to rehab and uh, that was the end of that good deal wow. yeah so well, I give lots of praise and thanks to the universe to God the great spirit whatever you call it yeah there's always those scenarios where we can't see that solution. So, you know, I was always taught, do do your business, but don't look for the hows. Like, the, it's the universe that figures out the hows. And it sounds like, I mean, nobody wants to get arrested at 4 o'clock in the morning, but that seemed to do the trick. Well, he didn't want to stop doing drugs until he woke up. I mean, he was just so lost in his, his uh, drug addiction, he didn't realize how much better he'd feel if he stopped. So, for me, I, I didn't know how to do it on my own. I couldn't just go make him stop. So I needed help mm-hmm. from our community. You know, the police officer that arrested him, that guy's my hero, right? He saved my dad. So you're, you're right, though. The, the universe can unfold the how as we go along. But I do like to ask the universe to tell me how so I can get some idea in my mind of what I'm going to do. But still, it's like skiing or snowboarding. Even if you think you have a straight line at the bottom of the mountain, you've got to weave and curve as you're going mm-hmm. down. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you, so can someone, um, I'm looking at some of the, the different, you know, start living free from negative fallout from me, have these different um, things here. It, can someone who is dealing with addiction, this would help them the, uh, take some of your programs or your courses? Yeah, you know, it's funny you brought that up because I just finished a private session with one of my clients who told me she quit drinking. And, um, you know, we worked on that. It took a while with her. Um, she would binge drink or drink too much, and then she was un- she was unhappy with it. And what we did was we just kept clearing out the negative emotions that she felt that made her want to drink until they were gone. 
And then uh, my team just made a 20-minute video of just testimonial clips. And one of them was of this guy, Clay, sharing that he quit smoking for the first time in 42 years. He's nicotine-free. And it was the same thing. Um, the thing with addiction is most people have an addiction, no matter what it is, whether it's coffee, cigarettes, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, pharmaceutical drugs, even shopping, because they have some emotional pain that they're trying to numb out or push down. And it's the same reason why people have junk food addiction. They just feel bad, and they try to find something external to make them feel better. But if you can release the pain, the sadness, whatever, the anger that's making you feel bad, really release it so it's not there anymore and you actually feel happy inside, well, then you don't have cravings anymore for that whatever made you feel better because you already feel better. And so then the addiction can actually go away in a permanent way, not a willpower way. If you go and research addiction, let's say you go to AA, which I love AA, if you go to their meetings and listen to people, you hear the same theme. I'm in tremendous emotional pain. I'm still in emotional pain, but I can't drink because it'll ruin my life, so I just have to be in pain. And I'm just like, oh, my God, if only you knew what I knew, you could get rid of your pain, and then you wouldn't be in pain anymore, and then you wouldn't even care about alcohol because you wouldn't need that to make your pain go away. And that's really the cause of the addiction is the emotional pain. Not always, mm -hmm. but most of the time. I, I think that makes sense to most people. Yeah, yeah, pain in the body. We've, had, we've talked a lot about that in over in the, you know, the podcast we've had over the past couple of years. Yeah, I agree. It's not it's not the only aspect. You know, my 30-day How to Overcome Addictions Without Willpower program also includes detoxing the body physically and getting the toxins out of the body that might cause cravings. So my concept is if you get rid of the cause of the cravings, then you don't have cravings, therefore you don't have an addiction. So look, pretty recently I was a guest speaker at a, a major university, and that's what they wanted me to talk about was just how to overcome addictions without willpower, just that program. And the centerpiece of it is erasing negative emotions, but there's, there's more to it. You know, there's creating a vision of yourself or who you want to be in your life and then moving towards that. So there's, there's other aspects, but that's the main thing is get rid of your emotional pain. Yeah. Since it is the day before Valentine's Day, I, I would like to talk about the unconscious programming or addiction of shopping. You know, uh, f especially for a guy, a guy and I'm not going to speak for all guys, but when I go shopping, typically, if I'm going shopping for my uh, girlfriend, it seems like the bigger the gift, the happier should be, she should be, and that's not always the case. But for Valentine's Day, you know, there seems to be the competition for, you know, for the girl at work who gets the bigger bouquet of flowers, you know, it's, it's all predicated on uh, being supersized. And it's, it seems to be more so getting the approval of others versus the person you're actually dating. Yeah, isn't that interesting that we do that in our culture? I mean, it says if we think that a bigger bouquet will make us feel better inside, but it doesn't really. And that, in a way, could be just covering up from covering up the little bit of emotional pain that's there or insecurity that's there, fear that's there, that maybe I'm not enough just the way that I am. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why our culture has gone that way. I think in America we tend to feed our desperate need for physical affection with other forms of love, like attention in terms of getting bigger presence, when sometimes what we just need is more touch or if you go back to the, the book, The Five Love Languages, giving gifts is one of the love languages, but there's other love languages. There's touch, there's expressing how you feel with your words, there's doing nice things for people and they're spending time with. So I think you got to know your, your sweetheart and see what love language she likes to be spoken in the best, like how, how she receives it the best. And 
I mean, honestly, if your woman is so, or your man is so affected by the other uh, people's opinions of how big of a bouquet you got, it might be something for you guys to talk about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to stay there for a second because you you were speaking at a university, so with with the children, there the children. Like I'm so old, but <laughs> with the with the kids. First, we went from cassette to the kids. So, so anyway, um, they have addiction now, a growing addiction to gaming, and it, it's it's not commonly known, but more and more people are are learning that uh, the the success of Facebook was actually partnering with the the powers that be in Vegas with the casinos, and so they were learning the psychology of 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 addiction or. Um, gratitude or whatever gets you that that those endorphins pumping by soliciting responses from other people i.e. likes or shares so I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that because that's something the current generation is grappling with but I think everyone's grappling with it on some level yeah it's that's so powerful you know people want to be liked they want to be a part of a community human beings are not loners by nature we are tribal we are supposed to be in communities in tribes in in studies and books that are written about centenarians people that live over 100 on average one of the commonalities is they have a strong connection to their community they're surrounded by loving people and a lot of what's happening now is people are moving away from connecting in a physical form, like going to their buddies' houses and hanging out, to connecting through media, because it's faster, it's easier. And you can reach a lot more people through media. I mean, we're missing that, that physical connection. And then you get isolated people, and you get people who are addicted to their social media because many different reasons. They're, they're not finding a purpose in life that gives them something else to do that's more exciting and more in- inspiring. Uh, I, there's some aspect of it that's super healthy too, you know, where they are connecting with more people and they are staying in touch with people that they haven't been able to stay in touch with. But I think what you're pointing to is that people are getting addicted to their social media. So I think what's a really healthy option for people is to consider taking a media break. Like one time someone told me to take a negativity diet to try that. What's a negativity diet? That means no horror movies, no violent movies, no gossip, no gossip magazines, like nothing negative in your life at all. So what would happen if you didn't have TV, phone, Internet, like nothing for a day or a week or a weekend? What would you do? What would your life be like? How would you feel? And I think if people take breaks from time to time, it can help them to not be addicted. Because an addiction is not when you do something that's bad for you. It's when you do something that's bad for you even though you don't want to. If you want to smoke a cigarette a day like one of my family members, that's not an addiction. She just likes it. That's like saying you're addicted to food because you eat. No, you're not addicted unless you try to stop, and then you can't. Now I have an addiction. So if people want to enjoy their social media, great, but I think they they need to remember the value and importance of human physical touch and connection and spending time with people in person too. That's a good point with the negativity diet. I'm thinking about uh, if we can, if you can just hang with me for this timeline for a second uh, with Facebook when they at first come around they only had the like button because they said if you had anything negative to say then this isn't the platform to do it and conversely when you look at YouTube I mean they've been around 
almost around the same time, that YouTube has a dislike button automatically, and people just click it, no matter if if the Lord and Savior was talking. <laughs> it just seems that we're we're driven by more so negativity. And from the timeline, I bring up that when Facebook started bringing all those emotions, that seemed to be more divisive as a platform. And I want to get your take on that. Do you mean that um, because YouTube allows you to to be negative or to to dislike something that divided those two platforms, that's what makes them different? Well, at, at once upon a time, now Facebook has all the other, uh, you know, emotions as well. And, and the argument initially was, well, we we have a range of emotions. We're not just happy all the time. Uh, but from the timeline, once that was actually released to the public, then it just seemed like it was it had given more people license to uh, exi- exhibit a lesser version of themselves. And I was bringing it up to you because we're talking about attracting a modern man. So I, we're talking about issues now, but I'd like to go to solutions afterwards. Well, I, I feel like there's a lot of people that go around just hating on other people because that's who they are. Um, Jim Rohn talked about the greatest sales pitch of all time was when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And there were 3,000 people there, and the entire time that Jesus was giving his sales pitch for what he believed in, there were people laughing at him and mocking him. And I can't find anything that I love, a book or a movie, that doesn't have people hating it. And that's just part of being in the, in the spotlight, is there's going to be people that are going to dislike, they're going to hate. And it's, it's really sad that people think that that's an appropriate way to express themselves, to go around spreading hurt and hatred. I mean, it hurts people when you criticize their uh, their artwork in a negative way, someone's music, someone's writings, it, it's, it's hurtful. And that's like you said, they were expressing a lesser version of themselves. But why do they do that? Because they're upset, because they're in pain, because they hate themselves, because they feel bad. The great master told me, Arno, if someone calls you a skunk, it's because they feel like a skunk. Mm-hmm. So... What can we do but heal these people? Try to find a way to reach them and, and make them feel better or ha- help them to make themselves feel better, ultimately. And in the meantime, you just have to have thick skin and realize some people are haters and that's just who they are. And it'd be nice if we lived in a world where people express their differing opinions with compassion rather than with unkindness and with meanness. So we just got to keep evolving. I think it just shows the the level of consciousness of where our civilization's at, that we have so much of that meanness in our social media and on the Internet. Yeah, Yeah, I was wondering where where do you see, I'm I'm looking at this scenario where you have the five secrets to attracting a modern man, and people, like you said, in the spotlight, that's where the hate comes out. But I can imagine in one scenario where a person didn't have that relationship, and now they did, and they wanted to share it on social media, and now they're getting hated for it. How, how would they respond? Well, I don't think you should put your personal life on social media. Yay! There we go. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I just don't think you should. Um, that, that's my personal opinion. But if someone does put their love life on social media, then they're up for being criticized. They're also up for being encouraged. You know, there's going to be all the, the wide spectrum of, of that. So then the question is, how do you deal with someone who's unkind to you? You know, having my own business, we have to deal with crazy people every once in a while. So what do we do with them? We don't attack them back. We feel sorry for them, and we bless them and send them on their way. We don't engage. If you want a child who's being crazy to stop acting crazy, you don't pay attention to their crazy. You just ignore it, and then they stop because they're not getting attention. 
and then you reward them or pay attention to them when they're doing good things, and they do more of that. And then they just stop misbehaving because it doesn't give them any attention, so what's the point? So rather than paying attention to the unkindness, we just ignore them. That's yeah. funny. That that could be construed as a uh, political statement <laughs> in today's <laughs> environment, Arno. How so? What do you mean? <laughs> the fact that you laughed made me think that you understand what I'm talking about. If you pay attention to someone that's being negative, that has the population <laughs> under their control, <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> right? Let's just push everyone's buttons, get them really angry, and then, then we'll just stir up all the the uh, the bad news is better than no news concept, and everyone will know about me, and there you go. I think yeah. the the other thing, uh, Plato, I'm sorry, David, I know I keep jumping on you. Uh, let me just ask this one last question. I'll let you jump in. Um, the other part was when you talk about this negativity diet, what's really interesting when we're talking about relationships that if you do – uh, unfortunately decide to uh, end your relationship with your spouse, then your attorney's first order of business is to tell you to leave social media alone because it could be used against you in the court of law. So it's important that when you said uh, we could get those Stuart Wild whispers, but we can also get that spiritual 4x4 four four where it can come back and bite us. Yeah, and that's true also when you're just job hunting. People look at your social media, and if they see things they don't like, then they may not consider you for the job. Um, social media is a chance for you to express who you are in the world, but it also is permanent. So be careful what you express. And put on, People usually just put on their A side, you know, the, their best sides of their life, and they don't necessarily put the bad stuff. So ultimately, we live in a really amazing time because we can communicate with each other so much faster than we used to be able to, and we can make so much more of a difference than we could before and get our information and our knowledge out and help more people. So it's a beautiful time. And, of course, with change comes some challenges and learning how to deal with the change. Yeah, really pain. Now, what I was going to say is I, I just I totally agree with you uh, when you were talking about you know, people's pain and why would they say, you know, negative things or this or that. And I've always felt that when people come at you like that, especially when they don't even know you, it's just really a reflection of their pain. So if Someone says to me, well, how come that doesn't bother you? Upset. I say, you know what? It doesn't upset. I have too much love for myself. If anything, I feel sorry for them because that comes from a place of pain. So it tells me how much pain they're in. <laughs> so if anything, I would like to help them, <laughs> you know, not hate on them or, or match that and, and be just like where they're at. Absolutely. And you can also look at if you do get upset by that, that's something for you to work on. And if you erase your upset, your negative feelings about their behavior, then it won't bother yeah. you anymore. And then what happens is you attract less of it into your life. Yeah, exactly. Find a degree of neutrality about it. So uh, as far as women and or men taking your course, is it about even or do you have one more than the other? When I started off teaching health and then taught personal development and erasing negative emotions first, we'd have 75% women. But in teaching the seven steps for programming yourself first and then the health courses coming after that, it's about 50-50 men and women. Mm. So how did you tie in the, as far as like nutrition? Was that right off, right off the bat or did you just kind of start to figure that out later how important nutrition is and in, in, in all this? 
Well, I had to start with nutrition because I was almost dead. I mean, when I was 22, every doctor I went to of every kind of medicine, everything I could find in a phone book, they all told me the same thing. You're never going to get better. You're already on the strongest medication. There's nothing we can do for you. And then my last doctor told me I was going to die. So I had to learn how to fix my body first. So that naturally became the basis of what I wanted to teach. But then a lot of people were saying, like, I don't want to learn about how to fix my body. I want to learn about just the mind, just the emotional stuff. And I had it all integrated into one big program. So I decided to change it and take the seven steps for programming yourself out and make it its own separate program. And it makes sense to learn that first because even if you know what to do for your body, you may not do it because you have all this stuff in your way. And that's what makes my health program very unique is, like, learning the way to reprogram the mind so that you become a healthy person and you naturally do healthy things instead of always using your willpower to overcome. So you could literally have no addiction, even food addiction, and just choose to do things that are good for you because it's what you choose. And that's a different place to be in. Most people have never experienced being completely addiction-free, even food addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to, uh, since you're talking about your, your peak potential and you're in Southern California, uh, there are, at least in the tech industry, you hear about microdosing and people in different companies in the tech industry, specifically, the, I'm in the tech industry, so that's why I know that niche. Uh, they're microdosing to actually tap into other mental capacities that they didn't have or that they felt they couldn't tap into uh, in a natural state. And I was wondering if you are running into those type of people and uh, in regards to, with regards to addiction, are they leading themselves down a negative road? Because I don't think anyone starts out that I want to be an addict. They start with, hey, I can control this. And then there's the downward spiral. Well, I don't think they're microdosing something that's addictive. And there was a study done at Oxford recently on uh, mushrooms, which contain the DMT molecule that people are wanting to put in their brain so they can be smarter and, like you say, access higher senses. And the study proved that every single person in the study was cured of depression. And what's amazing is that all of these people had been diagnosed and had depression for over 20 years, and none of them responded to any other form of treatment, including all the possible drugs you could give them. And all of them were, quote, cured of addiction or of, a, of depression. And the professor from Oxford said, you know, the fact that they were all cured isn't the surprising thing. The surprising thing is that we were even allowed to do the study. So they might actually be doing themselves a lot of good. But what they may not know, these people that want to access their higher potential, is that if they clean out their body and clean out their bloodstream, totally clean it out, I mean, to the point where nothing that's going in their mouth is poisonous in any way, their brain functioning will go off the charts. They could develop a photographic memory. They could develop their four intuitive senses. You you guys mentioned the Berkeley Psychic Institute. They're really all about clairvoyance, but there's actually four intuitive senses, not just clairvoyance, which is, is seeing. And you can develop those senses naturally without even knowing any exercises, just from purifying your body and your brain. And you can access those higher levels in a, in a more permanent way, which is really amazing and sometimes surprising for people to know that that's even available. It's like, it's, it's like a hidden secret that we have. Um, but as long as they feel like anytime they want, they don't need to microdose and they can just go a week or a month or a day without it, then they're not addicted. But if they reach a point where they can't stop, something's wrong. Is um, is a meditation is that a part of any of your courses? 
In the uh, first health course, I teach causing peace, which is a way to quiet down the mind. And yeah. if you quiet your mind down, there's a lot of different benefits. And the reason why it's in the health course is because there's over 600 scientific studies that show that if you quiet your mind on a regular basis, you'll be physically younger than people who are of the same chronological age as you. But it also allows you to develop your intuition. It's the foundational exercise for developing intuitive ability. It also allows you just to feel at peace throughout your day, which is why it's called causing peace. And if enough people practice quieting the mind on a daily basis and resonate that peaceful frequency, that peaceful vibe into the world, you will actually create peace on earth. And there is, there is some proof of that um, already out there in the world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When you speak politically, uh, well, I'm speaking politically for this, that there, you were talking about um, mushrooms and how they overcame depression. Politically, there seems to be a very positive movement in Oregon to legalize uh, access to recreationally taking mushrooms. Are you seeing the same platform or same fervor in California? I don't know. I haven't looked into it. It's not something I've um, been exposed to, but... My personal opinion is that if there's no study that proves it's harmful, I don't see why it should be illegal, if there, especially if there are studies that prove that it's beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you, you have uh, every state that is uh, going through its iterations with this whole CBD, and here in Georgia we always say it's, it's going to be the last state of the union that, that will actually accept it. But you do uh, – I, I have relationships with uh, a couple of vitamin shops in town, and it seems like a, a gold rush where people are just running in and they don't, all they want is like the highest, highest uh, quality CBD oil that they can get. And I think that was some of the concern that uh, politically, why would you publicly uh, release this to the public? So I'm just wondering uh, how far would the conversation with mushrooms, would that be a decade from now? Would that even go out way past, you know, 2050 as far as the conversation of uh, you're saying we can do it all internally but again, this is where we may be looking outside ourselves to reach our potential. Hey, there are studies that say that human beings would have never developed language if we didn't eat mushrooms. There's all kinds of uh, different opinions on its benefits for human beings that I think are at least worth researching. I, I think the reason why it's illegal is fear and lack of information, lack of knowledge, and finances. There's a lot of money to be made uh, selling synthetic or patentable drugs, and you can't patent something that's natural. Yeah, I, I think that that's the irony of what you're talking about as far as uh, coupling that with the silence and with a, the larger tech companies, their goal is every moment that your eyes are open, it should be glued to their platform. So we're talking about the antithesis of making money, at least in the United States. Um. Are you saying that, the, the, for example, like Facebook or YouTube or those companies, what they want is for people to be always looking at their screen, at their platform? I would include Netflix and that, Hulu, you know, all the streaming services as well. Right. That's their goal is to have you always watching all the time, every day. So they're getting all the attention, which means they're making all the money. I think exactly. what's, what's missing here is what Henry Ford said. The purpose of a business is not to make money. The purpose of a business is to provide a service to the community. He did not want to make a tractor affordable to the average person so he can make lots of money. He wanted to make the tractor affordable to the average person so that 
human beings wouldn't have to pull a plow themselves, which is what he had to do because he was a poor farmer. And he said, I should have a machine pull my plow for me. And why doesn't everyone have one? And everyone said, well, it's impossible. No one will ever be able to make a tractor or a car affordable to the average person. And he said, I don't believe you. I'm going to do it. And he did. And it was never about making more money. The guy had $5 billion, but he paid his employees more than anybody else. And he said, well, I have to because if they can't afford to buy my product, what kind of business do I have? The whole point of this is to make it so everyone can have it. That's the point of Ford Motors, to make the tractor and the car affordable for everyone. That's why I'm doing this, not to make money. And he never took any investment money because he said investors think the purpose of a business is to make money. And they'll screw everything up by trying to change things around just to be more profitable instead of making a bigger difference. I think the person who makes the biggest difference is the winner in life, not the person who has the most money. When you speak of difference now, there was a, a, an article, I think last week, from Starbucks, and the CEO mentioned that this was their most profitable year because they were able to incorporate artificial intelligence to better understand their customers. And using the Henry Ford model, they pretty much uh, mechanized what would take a human to do. And from a relationship standpoint, there are studies in China where <laughs> It may happen here, it may not, but there seems to be a gravitation towards artificial intelligence or artificial artificial relationships with um, the opposite sex, and they're not even encouraged to have that one-on-one human element anymore. Uh, I wanted I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, artificial intelligence and how how does that influence the modern man. Well, you brought up two different points there. Um, As far as artificial intelligence and business, I think it's a great thing. The more that we can automate things, the less that we humans have to do, the more free time we have to just enjoy life, Uh, ideally, right? But then sometimes one person keeps all the money and everyone else is struggling. So if we can even it out a little bit, then it's a great thing for everyone. As far as in relationships, there's this idea that, hey, why should I go out and meet people in person when I could just go into a virtual reality room, just put on some goggles and, or a bodysuit or whatever, and I can meet, meet all these people. I don't know what they really look like, but I'm still engaging in relationships, and it's fun. And there's one thing about the human being that's left out of that conversation, which is that the human body physiologically needs touch and sex physical contact to survive just like it needs air water and food how do i know well in the 17th century they figured out why 30 percent of infants died why was the infant mortality rate 30 percent this one corner of one hospital had a two percent mortality rate for infants and the, the heads of the hospital said what's going on how come the babies aren't dying here and they're dying everywhere else in the whole continent but this one area they're not dying what's going on and they found out there was a nurse who held every single baby every single day. And by holding these babies, they survived. And we're talking one out of three kids died from not being held. So then they created a schedule so all the babies in the hospital were held every day, and that caused the mortality rate to drop to 2%. And so we know that human beings need touch for survival. Human beings don't do well. Um, Dr. Virginia Satir posted a, a, an article, a blog post, about a study done on hugs. And according to the study, the average human needs four hugs a day to survive and 12 to thrive. You can't get a hug from a computer or a virtual, virtual reality machine. You've got to meet with people. No, that's huge. I, I, it's, I lived in Dominican Republic for a short time after, after school, 
and undergrad, and their personal space is a lot closer than it is in the States. And we are in an environment with Me Too where you have the sexes, it, it appears that they are at odds at each, with each other. So what what's your secret to writing that ship that seems to be going in the direction where there will be less and less human touch? Well, people are going to get together just for that. That's what I think. I think that's what's going to happen is people are going to realize, I need to be around other people. What can I do? And they just already meet up and different things like that. Um, that's why I do courses live. It's not just all online. Coming together has a tremendous value and benefit. So there's a lot I could say about how to fix the lack of affection problem in the United States because we're the only country in the world that is touch-phobic. The rest of the world is very warm and not afraid of touch. And I think it'll be a really huge thing in this country when we do heal that problem and get to the root cause of it. You said a meetup. Does that were you referring to the uh, cuddle parties? We have them here, but uh, have you ever experienced going to one of those? Well, I, I meant meetup in just in general. Like people just oh. wanted to find a way to go meet other people in person for all kinds of things. And then now you got cuddle parties. I have a a client who is a professional cuddler. People pay her like 150 bucks to come cuddle with them. <laughs> right? So that that might become a more popular thing or or variations of that. Or people will just have more parties in general and just hang out together more because they realize, "Oh, we kind of went one way in the pendulum. Now we got to go back the other way at least partly and spend time with other humans in person." So if you don't have to you could the saying that you can never teach an old dog new tricks is a lie because I can go back to school and be a professional cuddler. <laughs> it's always yeah. been a lie to say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You just have to delete their old programming. <laughs> <laughs> there was this thing going around on YouTube for a while. I haven't seen it, but um, where people were going to different cities and they just, you know, a few people would stand out in, in a plaza with their signs that just said free hugs. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, you ever seen that? Yeah, I have seen that. It's great, and there's um, people have T-shirts like that too. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. They just sent us their free hugs. You want her? And it was just, you know, sometimes it would take a little bit of time to get some momentum because you know people walk with, but eventually, you know, the people that I guess that got it would come and get a hug. And I was like, yeah, if I was there, I'd definitely go up and give them a hug because you know I'm, I'm a come from a family of we're, we're huggers, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My family wasn't like that, and I saw that it was a big problem. So I created a rule for myself to get three hugs a day, and I noticed I was a lot happier by doing that when I was in high school. And then I started trying to hug the other members of my family, and that kind of broke down some of the walls that were there of pain. And so what I say is be the first person to offer a hug. Offer everybody a hug. Don't be afraid to be the one that offers a hug, because, you know, that person might be kind of like, what, huh? like taken aback by you trying to offer them a hug. But the second time you offer them a hug, they might be like, oh, yeah, I'm ready this time. I don't know why I responded like that the first time. So just be the person who creates that change you want to see in the world, like Gandhi said. Mm. Yeah. Can are you, you also saying the – go ahead, David. I was going to say, can you talk a little bit what happens on uh, – what do you do on your, um, your uh, like, hiking adventures? I'm looking at this epic adventure, hiking in Topanga. What do you guys do? Yeah, we're doing an epic hike in Topanga Canyon. Um, it's funny because it matches what we were just talking about, that a lot of the members of our 
our live events and our online community, they were saying, we want to get together more. We want to have more mm. community support. So we said, well, let's create some fun, free events where people can just come and hang out with each mm. other. And, you know, they see me on stage, and they're like, oh, there he is up on stage. And then it's a chance for people to get to meet me in my normal clothes and just hang out with me. And um, I always end up teaching something anyway, but it's just more spontaneous rather than being like a formal workshop. And the hiking day in Topanga is super fun because it's a three-part sort of L.A. highlight tour. So first we go to the Lake Shrine in uh, Pacific Palisades, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And we'll hang out there for a little while, just walk around. It's like this immense garden. They have ashes of Gandhi there, and it's on this lake. Then we'll drive up to Topanga Canyon State Park, and we'll have lunch at the picnic tables in the trees, and then hike up to Eagle Rock, which is one of the best hikes you'll find. When you have an ocean view, when you get up to the top, it's just it's epic. It's amazing. And then we'll have dinner at one of the most romantic places in L.A., the end of the seventh ray. So anyone can come. It's open to the public. You just got to go to our Facebook page. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash Total Health Mastery, you can just um, RCP that you want to come. You got to RCP for sure for dinner because the restaurant won't have enough staff or, or seats for everyone in the CRCP. So that's important. Yeah, sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like something that's catching. Like it, it could happen when. You're, you're, are you doing your engagements outside of California, or are there plans to do like a national tour? Um, 2016, we did all the courses in Seattle, and then we've been doing them in Orange County. They're going to be in Orange County 2019. Uh, 2020, we're looking at are we going to stay in the United States, or are we going to do them in a different country, or what we're going to do. You know, having an online university makes our programs global, so everyone in the world can access our training. There's people all over the world right now listening to my courses or watching videos of my courses. So where we do them live has a lot to do with uh, where there's a big community of people that want to take the courses and where I'm at and what I want to do. I'm invited to uh, a huge anti-aging festival, and there's going to be the same festival happening in Tokyo in November. So I might be a guest speaker there. They haven't opened it up to apply for speakers. So who knows? Maybe I'll be in Tokyo next year. We'll see what happens. Very nice. You can always start immediately. Just go to my website, TotalHealthMasteryUSA.com. You can read about the 7 Steps for your programming yourself. If it's free, you can take advantage of the New Year's special that's almost over. Um, there's also a free webinar on my website, um, The Five Secrets of Ending Drama in Relationships. People say they laugh and they cry when they, <laughs> when they watch that. Oh, I love it. Uh, could you give us a teaser? What's the first secret to ending drama? The first secret, it's kind of similar to finding a modern man. The first secret to ending drama is to believe that you can actually have a drama-free relationship or a drama-free life. Because a lot of people think that fighting and arguing and yelling in relationships is a normal part of relationships. In fact, some people think that if you're not fighting, that you're not really in love. And that's just ridiculous. If you're really in love with someone, why would you ever say anything that hurts them? Why would you ever raise your voice to them? If you love them, you're going to treat them with love. And yelling at someone or putting them down is not a loving expression, ever. I mean, there's a rare exception where you yell at someone in a good way, like, hey, you can do it. Well, that's different. But when you're raising your voice to stomp someone else's voice down, and you're having drama in your life, that's not love. So that's the first thing is to realize, yeah, I could have a life where there's no drama. I could have a relationship where there's no arguing, no fighting. I could have a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year relationship and never have a single argument. And if you can believe it's possible, then you can start getting into how to do it. So the first step is just to believe you can. 
Yeah, it's interesting. That seems more of a uh, 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 American thing. I know some of uh, European friends that either I've dated or had experience with in the past. It's part of their culture. Like you can sit in art. Well, first of all, the restaurants don't flip tables, right? So you don't have to hurry up and gorge your meal and, and get out of there. So you're there for like two or three hours. And in that two to three hours, there may be a heated debate for over like two or three hours. And they usually do it more of a verbal exercise. It's not so who wins or who loses, but it's like, can you stand your ground? And before I could, or I shouldn't have said stand your ground, but um, but what my takeaway was before, they were like, why are you shutting down? I'm like, well, I don't want the drama. I don't, you know, and they're like, it's not even about drama. We just want to know what your opinions are. We're just very, uh, we wear our, our emotions on our sleeves, and we're not trying to even convince you to think our way. We're just a lively bunch, whereas we're taught here to kind of just shut that down. Uh, I wanted to know if you had any experience with that. My brother got his degree in philosophy, and so they spend a lot of time debating or discussing what they believe and what their philosophies are. In fact, that's one of the, the biggest skills you develop as a philosopher is to be able to uh, make a really strong argument for what you believe in. But it's not a, a, a drama-filled argument. It's more of a, a logical exercise. Like, what do you really think? Why, why do human beings exist? Why is the world the way it is? You know, what's the purpose of life? Like, all these types of questions should be talked about. And sometimes people get excited when they express their opinion, but that's not the same thing as your sweetheart telling you, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. You're just, a, you're just a, a worthless, filthy animal. You're just a dog. All you want is sex. That's all you think about. Like, that's hurtful. I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about drama. Like, you can live a life or have a relationship where you and your sweetheart never hurt each other. No, that, I think that's the perfect way to end it on D-Day. And I shouldn't call it D-Day anymore. It was more tongue-in-cheek for this podcast. So <laughs> I think everyone will be smiling, or if you're not, turn those frowns upside down for Valentine's Day. Uh, you do. I want to talk about your book, your upcoming book. We're almost at the top of the hour. You have the answer, how to change your life, make your dreams come true. Uh, when is the timeline for that to come out? And when, how can people get in touch with you to uh, do your seven steps to reprogramming yourself and to go to your hiking slash dinner retreats? Okay. So there's no um, release date for the book right now. It's just still in process. There's still a lot for me to do with the book. As far as the seven steps, they would just go to totalhealthmasteryusa.com and then they could just type in forward slash seven steps if they want, or they could just, if you go to the website, it's right there. It's the first thing you'll see. And then as far as the hiking day, go to Facebook, facebook.com forward slash total health mastery, or just search for total health mastery on Facebook, and you can RSVP for the hiking day. And there's, there's other events going on, like we call them Arno's party events. So you can also um, join our party list, and then you'll get emailed or texted the invites for all the future ones. Fantastic. Well, you've just been tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a homie's perspective. This is Hamza. And I am Davey. Arno, it was a pleasure, man. Let's definitely stay in touch. Thank you so much. It was so great being on your guys' show. You guys are full of knowledge, and it was, it was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.